Psalm 161 has been asked that we mark that, and certainly at the appropriate time this evening, we'll use that as the song of encouragement, the song of invitation. As was already mentioned, it is an opportunity, and at that, a marvelous one that we each have been granted today to assemble not only the first time this morning, if at all possible, but yet again a second time today to offer the worship and homage under the pattern of Matthew 4, verse 10, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. It is with that in mind, and the song that Brother Jeff just led us in, in fact, made mention of the concept of peace, and tonight we'll not only continue but conclude our brief series of lessons on the subject of being a peacemaker. Last Lord's Day evening, as we had given thought to that title, tonight is just installment two of the same, and wasn't it true that our Savior pronounced a marvelous blessing? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It is certainly something to be desired and something to be greatly yearned for, to be reckoned and labeled as a child of God. And yet we've just learned that happier, blessed are those who seek to make peace, who strive to be labeled as a peacemaker. And so tonight, as we continue that series of lessons, perhaps it's fair to use just a moment to remind ourselves of what we learned last week and then pick up from that point and consider some additional lessons this evening. You might, in fact, notice that in that opening lesson, we highlighted the fact of how needed peace is in this world. So often as strife and faction and division exists between individuals, between families, in churches, between nations, and in many other arrangements, and yet there is such a great need and desire for there to be peaceful conditions and a standard of peace that is able to bring the parties together so that they can coexist in a way without tension and without strife. It is with that in mind we learn the source of peace first and foremost is the God of heaven. In John 16 verse 33, our Savior uttered these memorable words when He said, These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you should have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world." As Jesus made those statements to those apostles, and they were going to see Him crucified the very next morning, I wonder how often they reflected on the promise the Lord made them. In me, you'll have peace. But we also learned another valuable lesson, that peace and righteousness go hand in hand. In Psalm 85 verse 10, we particularly noted that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. A very close union a very close and intimate relationship, if you please. And so if you and I are to be individuals who know peace, we need to be individuals who live righteously. And thirdly and finally, last week, we noted that interesting state of affairs as one gives thought to peace in the family. In so many ways, families are suffering partly because there is a dearth, a famine, if you will, of peace. There is infighting between the parents, between the children, between the children and the parents, and vice versa. Oh, how marvelous it is to observe and witness a family who not only knows peace, but who thrives in it, in which there is a haven of security and peacefulness that exists in that family. It's easy to be seen among those families that enjoy it, and it's easy, of course, to appreciate how marvelous a blessing that really is. At that point, we concluded that lesson and prepared ourselves to look at the second installment which we shall now enter into this evening. Being a peacemaker, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
I've numbered these particular lessons of tonight's subject following those of the previous one. And so part number four, which is the first one we'll consider this evening, has to do with peace in the church. We looked again briefly at the close of the lesson last week at peace as it ought to exist in the family. But now, let's consider God's spiritual family for a moment. Isn't it a tragedy of virtually unspeakable proportion when a congregation seems to be without peace? When there are individuals who claim to follow the same Lord and Master, individuals bound together by the blood of Christ, individuals who follow the same book as their law and guide, Individuals who claim to be going to the same eternal destination and yet they can't get along here on earth. There are grudges and tension and strife and infighting to the point where even division sometimes prevails. Those kinds of matters just cause us to at least give a moment's reflection to how sad it is when a church doesn't know peace. Maybe you and I have visited them on occasion and it doesn't take long to sense it that there are factions or groups that have no fellowship one with another. When there are ideas to be set forth, there are those who perhaps as a part of one physical family cling together and uphold one set of ideas, whereas another group perhaps follows a different set of ideas and they have little conversation, virtually no fellowship with each other. How does the Spirit of Christ reign in a congregation like that? How does the mindset and power of the concept of peace find itself represented in that congregation? One would find it hard to explain, wouldn't it? In fact, as we give some thought to the nature of peace in the church, there ought not be cliques, clans, and divisions that rule and reign. It ought to be a mutual humbleness in regard to the character of the Word of God in which every person strive to submit to the leadership of those elders, and they themselves included all submit to the presentation in loving and powerful obedience to the Word of God. Is it any wonder to the churches of Galatia that Paul wrote in Galatians 5.15, But if ye bite and devour one another, be not surprised if you're consumed one of another. And isn't it true that that's the way it usually works? Once the seeds of division are sown and once the seeds of faction begin to germinate and bring forth fruit, quite often it isn't long until the numbers decline remarkably. People don't want to be a part of a congregation in which there's strife and tension and faction and you'll be consumed one of another. It is a lovely thing to give thought to the existence of peace in which there's a harmony, a unity in which brethren dwell together that way. Didn't the psalmist say in Psalm 133, verse number 1, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is with that in mind, perhaps we can notice Paul's famous refrain in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, to that church in Corinth. As we've often noted, they well had their divisions, and they well had their factions, and they well had their infighting and disagreements. And yet it was to them that Paul said, I beseech you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. A rather impressive requirement from the God of heaven on their unity and their peaceful relationships one with another. Wasn't it James who in James chapter 3 verses 16 to 18, in which he stated that 
when there is confusion in every evil work, the reason for that is strife and division. And so, confusion, strife, and division all go hand in hand, but that wisdom that's from above is first pure, and then secondly, it's peaceable. So, the wisdom that comes from God will engender and will bring forth that which is peaceful. We should ever strive not only to have peace in our families, but in our church family. So that as we come together and we engage in the various works of the church, be they benevolence, evangelism, or edification, that we're able to do so assisting, edifying, and capably asserting forth that which really is the desire of God that we strive to work together. It is with that in mind we do come to the fifth and last part of this brief series of lessons. So far as we've discussed peace in the church, peace in the home, it now would be a very good question to ask. But how do we be people who love and enjoy to make peace? What are some practical guides the Bible may offer that will assist each of us in being those who really are peacemakers? We shall, in the limited time available to us, very briefly look at ten of them. We shall, in fact, look at them one by one, but as we do so, I believe the ideas will be readily appreciated and easy enough to see. It all begins by noting some of the thoughts we have already appreciated, namely that in order to be a peacemaker, one has to have a knowledge of that which leads to peace, which is this book. That, of course, may require that you and I increase and grow in our maturity, doesn't that imply that to some degree, peacefulness and being a peacemaker is a learning process? An individual who first perhaps has become a Christian, or who perhaps may be young, may not be thoroughly acquainted with the teachings of the Word, and thus over time, as he or she learns more, they then would be better equipped to be those that can be called a peacemaker. That does highlight, doesn't it, the thought that I presented at the bottom the desire that you and I should have to be likened unto those that would learn and mature and grow so that we can apply its teachings and in fact be peacemakers. But with that in mind, what are some of those specific teachings that in fact directly come before us? Here in fact is the first one. In order to be labeled or called a peacemaker, it goes without saying that one should desire peace. A person who doesn't desire peace will not exert any effort to see that such comes about. A person who has no interest in being a peacemaker will not conduct himself in ways with others so that a peaceful relationship would be likely to exist. That kind of person will be just as happy in a state of strife or a state of tension or maybe in a state in which it's far less than what one might call peaceful. You might remember some of these passages such as Romans 12 verse 18. If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. And that passage alone asserts there must be a desire. If it be possible, as much as life in you, if you and I have not a mindset that desires peace, it's unlikely that peace will exist. Because just as soon as there's a disagreement, just as soon as there is some matter in which there's not full harmony of consideration, there will almost immediately erupt a fight, a more pronounced disagreement that may well lead to something that we aren't in any ways near excited about completing. We're just as happy to leave it in the state, in fact, of a lack of peace. 
It is in that regard that Peter reminded us in 1 Peter 3.11, Seek peace and ensue it. And that word seek in the Greek literally means to be something genuinely wanted, to seek in order to find. In other words, this is something that you and I are given command to search after. It's not that we wait for it to come to us. We seek to make it happen to the degree that you and I are able to do this. Seek peace. Are you and I always as quick to seek a state of peace as we might? And these, of course, are suggestions for the Word of God that would be good in the church, in the family, even in other arrangements, to seek peace and ensue it. Sometimes in the workplace or otherwise, when there are circumstances that arise that are far less than peaceful, sometimes you and I can be one of the first to help take care of that by simply being the one to seek peace and ensue it. But that isn't the only word of advice. That, in fact, may require that you and I make changes in ourselves. If by nature of immaturity I haven't yet arrived at that point in which I long for or desire for peace, then I should strive to work upon that characteristic so that peace is something I do desire and something that would be longed for in your life and mine. Second word of advice, in as much as it appears in the Word of God, which relates really to one of those earlier points again, is that on which we think. It certainly is safe to say that the actions that you and I enter into and follow upon are actions that first began as a thought. Thus, if we guard our thinking, and if our thoughts are directed toward that which is holy and godly, then we will be less apt to have these thoughts that would engender a state of no peace, or a state that's far removed from it. In fact, here are some passages, specifically the Philippians 4.8 verse. Always reminds us, doesn't it? Therefore, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. If our mind is thus attuned to matters that are listed in that listing, then we would be in a position to desire that which are the fruits of those things, and that's a peaceful relationship. It still is the case, isn't it, that in Isaiah, we read in chapter 57, verses 20 and 21, a statement about the nature of this matter of righteousness, when on that occasion the inspired writer said, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Thus, if we think righteously, removing ourselves from those which are wicked thoughts, then our actions will be less likely to be wicked, and we from the book of Isaiah would be far more apt to enjoy a state of peacefulness and all the blessings that follow from it. In the third place, you'll notice this is the last one on that slide, the removal or avoidance of whispering and gossiping and tail-bearing. It is true, isn't it, as so profoundly asserted in Proverbs 26, verse 20, where no wood is, the fire goeth out. And similarly, where the whisperer is not, the strife ceaseth. Isn't it true that in so many ways, when you and I are given to gossip, speaking of things of which we are not certain, and perhaps even things that need not be uttered or stated, that we engender ill feelings 
when others learn that you and I have been speaking about them, but we never spoke to their face, they are quick to distrust us. And they are quick to hold thoughts against us. And thus that leads to a division. And it leads to a disagreement. And it leads to a lack of peace. Is it any wonder so often when the murmuring ceases, unity can prevail. And peacefulness can also be that which is so readily found. When the children of Israel murmured so often and so much, remember there was division among the camp. But yet on those occasions, and albeit they may have been few in number, but when the murmuring ceased and they did obediently follow Moses, they were able to make progress and they were able to be productive and they were able to move more carefully toward the desired goal of relationship with God. It's also the case that even if something is true, it's not necessary that it be uttered. In fact, there are many occasions when you and I may become aware of something, but if it doesn't minister grace and serve to benefit, then there's no point in repeating it. Wasn't it true that Paul uttered this statement in Ephesians 4.29? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that, it may minister grace unto the hearers. Are those words that cross my lips and yours those that minister grace to the ones that hear? Or do they besmirch the character of someone else? Do they cause, in fact, <clears throat> reputations to be tarnished and marred needlessly? Then if so, those words are better unspoken. It might be noted that in terms of this third particular line of consideration, gossip and tale-bearing matters that can greatly cause a dearth, a famine of peace amongst any group. But what about in the fourth place? Even beyond this matter... Consider with me our own personal response at times. We should be individuals as commanded in the Scriptures to be ever swift to hear, but slow to speak. Sometimes many of us have an issue or problem with that. We're far too quick to speak and not nearly quick enough to be good listeners. And sometimes our mouth gets us into trouble. We say things that we later learn, really we were operating on incomplete information, and thus that which we said turned out not to be right, but yet someone took it the wrong way, and someone concluded something from it that turned out not to be correct. We've all been in perhaps in situations in which we've seen that happen. Maybe we should take to heart in a more profound way those teachings in verses like Proverbs 18 verse 13, in James 1, verses 19 and 20. Wasn't it true in that James passage especially that James said, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Isn't it still interesting that God gave us two ears but one mouth? Perhaps that numerical matter is simply to help us appreciate some important fact, namely, we should listen with great care. And then, upon careful listening and a thorough understanding of that which was spoken, then we're able to dispense, hopefully, some wise matters or wise statements concerning that which we have heard. In the next place, might we also notice the estimation or the esteemed quality that you and I are supposed to have for others. Selfishness is really the heart of this one. It still is also true that one of the other major issues that can so often at the most basic level lead to a lack of peace is selfishness. I want it my way, 
and I really don't care what you think or what you might have in mind or what ideas you may have thought of. I want it my way. And as such, ultimately from that a division or at least a disagreement, perhaps a grudge follows therefrom because I act illogically. I act in a way that isn't according to good sound wisdom and good sense. You might notice that here we're reminded in Genesis 13 as well as in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 that we are to esteem others better than ourselves. We should each have a mindset of listening and the idea that's best, it should be pursued regardless who suggested it and regardless who in fact might have been the one because to God be the glory. Do we not read passages like that in 2 Peter 3.18? In light of that one, can we not remember that rather sorrowful state that existed at one point between Lot and Abraham? Or perhaps we should say between their herdmen. God had richly blessed each one of them. Their herds and flocks had grown to the point that there was strife that existed between the herdmen. And you might notice Abraham was a peacemaker. Abraham made the suggestion, you take which way you want, I'll take the other. There ought be no strife betwixt us. And may it still be that in our mindset today in the church, in our homes or otherwise. And thus, Abraham was not a selfish person. Perhaps as the elder he had every right. Perhaps it would not have been inappropriate at all to make the affirmation, I'm going to journey in the direction toward the east. You can journey whichever way you like, Lot. But yet that was not Abraham's viewpoint. He, in absolute consideration of estimation for him, allowed him to make the first choice. Today, if you and I act selflessly, act in a way that is of loving character toward others, that will be noted and it will strive to bring about a state of peace and a state of harmony because ill will will not germinate but rather goodwill will be the order of the day. I did make the careful note, though, that this doesn't at all remove the occasional need for firmness and sternness. I'm not in any way suggesting compromise on doctrinal matters. If there comes a disagreement and something is unscriptural, then one must never compromise on that point. Hopefully, in careful, loving patience, one can show book, chapter, and verse and help show the other the error of that thinking. But when it's in a matter of expediency, the careful and loving features associated with selflessness will certainly be an aid to assisting in the maintenance of peace. At the bottom, when there are those occasions, when a disagreement prevails, when individuals see things differently, and in those occasions when there seems to be an absence of peace, might we each note the responsibility that comes our way. When it is possible, seek reconciliation. When it's possible, seek that state of peace so that it may exist again. I've listed for us a passage in Matthew 5, 24 that has to do with worship. If you and I come to the place of worship, Jesus made mention of it as the altar, and you remember that your brother hath ought against you, leave thy gift, go thy way, be reconciled to thy brother, then come and worship. That places a high responsibility upon each of us, doesn't it? If I recognize my brother has ought against me and I have exerted no effort to make that right, to find out what the cause of the problem is, to learn nothing about the nature of why there is no peace, 
then it's high time that I take the effort to strive and find out what it is. It may have been nothing more than a misunderstanding. It may have been nothing more than a misapprehension of what really was never even true. It is important for us to seek reconciliation. We read in Ephesians 4.26, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. We ought not be an individual who longs for and wishes for a state of anger and wrath to exist on and on. It may be the other person isn't happy to make peace. They may want the grudge to remain, but may you and I never wish it so to be. May we strive as much as in us to be those who live in accordance to peace. In the next place, we also notice this particular passage or this particular thought. There are occasions when the development of self-control is very, very valuable. Again, we likely have each been in circumstances when something wasn't planned. A particular something is not as if one with premeditation made it come about, but yet a situation arises and then on the spur of the moment, someone does something or someone says something and immediately a heated debate arises. It would be so much better if at all possible, wouldn't it? to in fact allow the embers of time to remain for a bit, then perhaps return and discuss it later. When tempers have cooled slightly, when issues have come to be better understood, it is no wonder that some of these passages like 2 Peter 1.6 remind us of the Christian graces, how valuable temperance is. Add to your faith virtue and to verse your knowledge and to knowledge temperance. Element three in that list. That word temperance means self-control. I should not be one to fly off the handle, as that old saying goes, and jump up on someone, or if you please, to state it that way. But if at all possible to control oneself, maybe after a bit of time, then to discuss it with intelligence, and also to discuss it with a bit more logic and analyticity. Thus self-control can be valuable. And in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27... Paul hinted at that idea yet again when he said, speaking of himself, lest after I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. It's interesting the way Paul began that verse. He said, I keep under my body. Paul thus had to labor constantly. The great apostle had to exert constant labor on his own part to keep his body under subjection so that he would not himself be labeled a castaway despite the fact he was preaching to others. Paul's discussing temperance, isn't he? Controlling self so that he wouldn't say that which was inappropriate. It seems from Paul's background, as learned a man as he was, as scholarly an individual as he was, Paul probably, based on the text of Acts 26, was not one who would sit back very long and wait. He may well have been an impetuous person who would be quick to affirm the character of rightness or wrongness in someone else, but yet Paul said he had to in fact exert temperance so that that which he spoke would not allow him to be labeled as one who was falling aside from the truth, one who was a castaway in his own words. You might notice based on that that we come to another lesson. This one from the book of Philemon. Intercede with love and biblical basis. I use that word intercede because that's what Paul did. We remember that Onesimus had run away from his master. 
He was a slave who had run away from Philemon. And yet in the imperial city of Rome, he came in contact with Paul, and Paul ultimately converted him by teaching him the truth, setting before him the need of eternal life, and this gentleman Onesimus obeyed that truth and became a Christian. It was based upon those matters that Paul penned a little letter back to Philemon and had Onesimus carried in which he besought him to take Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. What a tender letter of intercession in which Paul, interceding on Onesimus' behalf, helped ease his way back into his master from whom he had run away. Philemon might well have been rather angry, might well have been fierce and ferocious with Onesimus. He was a runaway slave. And yet Paul besought Philemon to take him back with kindness, with tenderness, and with understanding. He is a novice brother in Christ. You need to teach him, edify him, assist him in his growth in the truth. That is a marvelous and beloved letter, isn't it? No doubt it has touched all of us in many ways. May you and I intercede on behalf of others today when parties are at disagreement? Perhaps. When those occasions come, though, may we always do it in love. It's not that we should take sides simply because we know one better than the other. We should strive to do so because of our love for them and our love for the truth and always do so with the basis of the Bible in mind. It's interesting as one gives thought to that nature of peace. Certainly interceding can be dangerous if one isn't thoroughly aware of each one of the circumstances and situations. But when that opportunity affords itself, may we with love strive to again make peace among brethren. You'll notice one final thought in that is the procession with care leads us to notice that that's what Paul did. His letter, the book of Philemon, is a very tender and touching book. Paul does not command Philemon to take Onesimus back. He says, by apostolic right, I could have. But I thought it far better if with your own mind you chose to accept him back, knowing the kind of individual that he now is. Isn't that tender diplomacy? That is a stroke of heavenly genius for Paul to have been able to pen that letter in that way. You'll notice near the bottom we come to two more lessons. These, you'll notice, are worded differently than the others that have preceded it. All the others were positive admonitions. These are negative ones. And they, in fact, directly come to you and to me. They come at each of us in our moments that are perhaps weakness. First of all, we might comment, do not be contentious. There are individuals, aren't there, who seem to be contentious by nature. They rub individuals the wrong way. They seem to always or at least often be in disagreement with others about matters no matter what they are. And they seem to just by nature be a person that's contentious, hard to get along with. We should notice that when it comes to ourselves, we should strive not to be a contentious person. That, you see, is one that leads to a lack of peace. Consider some of these verses. In Proverbs 26, 21, as well as Titus 3, verse 10, we're reminded about the danger that it goes with being a contentious person. Thus, we should strive not to be of that character and of that nature. I've listed just a thought or two here that is worthy of thought. Some people, wherever they go, seem to take a quarrel with them. 
they seem to by nature be able to stir up a disagreement no matter where they go and no matter who they speak with. That should be a character far removed from a Christian. Our desire is not to be contentious. Our desire is to be truthful. To simply stand intact and loving care upon all that the Lord has declared and all that God has revealed. And contentiousness so often leads to such dire problems, not only personally, but that which can be raised in others. Maybe you've known of circumstances, even churches, where a given group, maybe a family, places membership and it's not a year later to where that church is now in deep problems because that family is perhaps selfish. Perhaps that family is known for its contentious character and they have stirred up the congregation in a way that there's now infighting and the problems have become tantamount to open division. What a tragedy. What a shame. Thus, let us not be contentious. And finally, at the bottom, that points to another characteristic of myself or of others that also can be very powerful in leading to a lack of peace, and that is stubbornness. Unwilling to see anyone's point of view but my own. Unwilling to make a reasonable assertion in regard to the acceptance of anyone else's idea. Unwilling to even discuss anything that may have come from the ideas of another. Again, there are those who are stubborn, aren't there? And sometimes it's difficult to work with them. Sometimes it's difficult to converse with them. Sometimes it's difficult to make progress in any concerted way with them. The Bible also reminds us in 1 Samuel 15, 23 of the error of stubbornness. We ought not to be stubborn people. We rather should be individuals who can look at a situation, apprise the characteristic of it, match it up with that which is taught in the Word of God, and thus make the rightful, loving, and truthful pursuit in regard to it. It's not a matter of my way or no way. It's the matter of the way that's right and the way that's best. These ways are things that can help all of us be peacemakers. Individuals who not only love peace for ourselves, but also love it for others. With that said, we come not only to the close of this lesson tonight, but again, the close to this brief series of lessons in which I've tried to highlight some of what we've learned. We've learned that peace is important. The Bible mentions it 450 times, highlighting the importance it has in the halls of heaven and highlighting the importance it ought to occupy here upon earth. But just as surely as that thought is noted, it must begin with the notion of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And then based upon that, we in our search of the Scriptures noted that both in the home and the church, peace should reign supreme. And that with them, here were some lessons that we, one after another, noted that could be practical and useful guides to help us be individuals of peace. Inasmuch as it's based on the Word, it should be something desired. And with that desire in mind, to think righteously, to avoid whispering, gossiping, and tail-bearing. Furthermore, that in those to be slow to speak but swift to hear... With those kind of mentalities, we then noted the careful esteem that others should occupy in our thinking. Following that one, we gave thought to the need to seek reconciliation when possible, and then to develop self-control, to intercede in love, and finally to be neither contentious nor stubborn. Tonight, if those matters should characterize either you or me, 
it's time to make some open, heartfelt change as we approach our God of heaven. It's time to be those who not only love peace, but who more than anything wish to be at peace with God. And of course, to let that peace fill our hearts so that we could be at peace with others. It is a noble aspiration to wish and to desire peace. Our government wishes it, or at least they say they do. Others also affirm the desire for peace. How desperately do you and I wish it? If you'd like to be at peace with God tonight, but you are not currently, one of two possibilities could be the case. It may be that you have never been at peace with Him since you reached the age of accountability. Maybe you have wandered into sin, as everyone does, Romans 3.23, and you have never exited that sorrowful state. If tonight you need to respond in a public way, that plan of salvation is set forth in language like this. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess the glorious name of the Christ as the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could assist you tonight, all things are ready and we would be happy to do that. However, if you once have known peace with God, but you have allowed it to lapse from you, perhaps gradually over time you've just wandered along that wide way that leads to destruction and doom, it's time to come back to be at peace with God. You may perhaps need not be rebaptized. In that state, you may only need to make confession of those sins that have marred your way since that time, and we again could pray with you and for you. As you confess and repent of them, God will forgive you. If tonight we could be of assistance to you in either of these ways, we would only ask you let us know in the way we could be of help. While together we stand and while we sing.